Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It is March 14th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, and I'm joined by Jonathan Last and Michael Warren of the Weekly Standard. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you? Good afternoon, Charlie. Good afternoon, Michael. I'm just dandy. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted with starting with a question that we were asking before we went on the air. Is, is that real? Is that true? Because the, every single day there's one of those, really, did that actually happen or is that a hoax story? We'll, we'll, we'll get to the, the specific in a little while, but uh, let's talk about Pennsylvania 18 because we are morally obligated, I think, to overanalyze this special election. Um, I was struck uh, reading some of the, the accounts out of Capitol Hill where Republicans are busy telling one another it's no big deal. Don't worry. The Republican candidate was weak tea. He was a bad candidate. The Democrat, Connor Lamb, was basically running as a conservative Republican. He was almost Donald Trump. So um, we, we feel pretty good about all of this. So. Uh, let's start with you, uh, Michael. Your sense about the level of denial among uh, Republicans on Capitol Hill and whether that is justified? Well, I guess publicly, at least, the denial is very high. I, I you know, I, I, if if you're very concerned, which in reality the Republicans on Capitol Hill are very concerned about losing the House uh, in November. I don't understand the sort of stance of, uh, oh, this is no, this is not important. I, I would think you want to sort of light a fire under your members and under your candidates and say, uh, look, a 20-point Trump district in uh, Pennsylvania, a state he won, he's the last, uh, first Republican to win Pennsylvania in decades, um, and it's swung this far, it swung 20 points. Um, and, and we should yeah, that, that you you would think that that would be the normal human reaction as opposed to say, yeah, this is fine, you but, know. But this, this is the this nature is... of like how political parties are; they sort of publicly cannot um, admit any kind of defeat or any kind of problems uh, on the public side of things. Um, I I don't have any inside information. I imagine there are. Um, yeah, maybe probably even before yesterday's results came in, there were there were phone calls going around saying we've got to we've got to change something or at least realize what's 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 happening. Although, when it comes down to it, the big problem is something they can't really change, which is that Donald Trump at forty percent support is the president and the leader of the Republican Party. What else right. can you do? And, and it, it, that's the unsoluble dilemma. They can't win without. Trump supporters, but then they can't run with Trump in suburban areas that are turned off by Trump. Yeah, I mean, I, isn't, I mean how, how do you get around that, Jonathan? Yeah, I don't think they can. You know, I, I had a friend who made a, a smart point to me over email last night, and he said, you know, it actually could be true in this case that Saccone was hurt by not being Trumpy enough. And I'm not sure I buy that entirely, but I buy the possibility of it. And, but if it's true, in a way, that illustrates the box Republicans are in. They are they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. You know, so they've they've got this president who has a very very niche appeal and very very high negatives outside the niche, and they can't have one foot in either camp. You know, I mean, they, they, there really is no way out. I was thinking about this this last night, guys, because uh, I was sort of looking at the it. I was on Twitter just trolling and like spitting out excuse after excuse after excuse. <laughs> Sarcastically, I thought, although I got a bunch of outraged liberals saying, yeah, you keep telling yourself that, Mr. MAGA man. And I was like, don't you don't. Don't never mind. Isn't the phrase outraged liberal sort of redundant? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, these people are in a constant state of outrage. Or don't joke. Why are you even talking about football? Why are you even joking about like not not following this every single moment? So I I was wondering, you know, are you we at not a, care about some, children? Are we at some new level of stupid? 
But I don't think we are. I was actually thinking back to the last couple midterm waves, and I was thinking like 2010 with Obama and the Democratic happy talk that lasted all the way through. I was thinking about the uh, uh, 2006 Republican happy talk under Bush, and then going back even still to 94, like the giant massive realignment. The Dems kept telling you, everything's great. Everything's fine. Don't you worry. And so this is, as Mike said, this is like a persistent thing that parties do. And maybe for good reasons. I mean, there there may be reasons that you have to, pro- like when, you know, when there's a run on the bank, the bank can never say, hey, there's a run on the bank and we might collapse. Right. It could be that they have a, a that it is in their own interest to, to be publicly foolish because nobody's ever going to hold well, the party it, in it You know, it's, it's a great point. I, I don't remember the name of the, it was a Democratic uh, operative. Who was retweeting some some Republican denial about the significance of this race? And he wrote something like, uh, "Yeah, I used to say stuff like that, write stuff like this back in 2010 yeah. as as a as a Democrat." <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you do it, and I think we've all been there, and we all you'll know, search out the the. I'm old enough to remember the whole skewed poll thing. Remember skewed polls? Yes. Yeah, we got to unskew them. Well, which, which was basically just sort of therapy for ourselves, wasn't it? That's right. Well, I, and I will let me push back a little bit, or at least say that perhaps Pennsylvania 18 is a little different as well. Our our colleague John McCormick pointed this out on Twitter, uh, which is that why were we having a special election in the first place? It was because Tim Murphy, the Republican who's held this seat for several years, several cycles, uh, Republican or a Republican district, uh, was caught up in a scandal where he was he had been having an affair. Uh, they had a pregnancy scare uh, with this woman who worked in his office. Um, he has been sort of a, a, uh, an anti-abortion pro-life uh, uh, voter uh, in, in Congress uh, and apparently tried to get her to have an abortion. Turns out she wasn't pregnant, uh, but there was all the, the information was there. So he sort of left in, in scandal. And, and, and that kind of scandal, particularly sex scandal, particularly a hypocrisy scandal, um, never works out well for the incumbent party. So there is this kind of independent factor coming going in here that was sort of already was going against uh, the Republican, the incumbent party. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not sure so. that's going to make it an outlier for Republicans. The by the way, the party, yeah. the party formerly known as the Party of Family Values. Um, since, of course, uh, at the last minute they bring in the president who's uh, wrestling with his own payoff to a porn star. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it's so, a shame that Murphy didn't actually be doing this with a porn star instead of somebody in his office, because then everything would have been cool. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, maybe you see. No I actually, in my mind, I play the game. What would it take? What would it take? And and there's there's part of me that thinks the you know payment for an abortion might be too much for Jerry Falwell Jr. But that I think no, there's no, nothing. it wouldn't. No. I actually kind of hope we get there because I'd like to see Falwell like go ahead and excuse it because I think there is nothing for, for some of these people. I, you know, Ann Coulter literally wrote this once upon a time, right? She said, right. you know, and, and he could be performing she, she abortions okay, I, I on his desk the in the 35, Oval Office. 35,000, 40,000 foot view of this. I, I was actually talking to somebody in, uh, uh, in Wisconsin Republican circles about this this morning. And they were making the point that, that back in my home state, the unemployment rate is now down to like 3.1%. The economic numbers are awfully impressive. The Republicans have passed what appears to be a surprisingly popular tax cut bill. And all you would think that in a normal political universe, this would be a great environment for Republicans. That'd be a great environment for the incumbent president of the United States. So it's it's, it's more remarkable when you think about how strong the economy is, how good people are feeling about their pocketbooks, and yet apparently how toxic Donald Trump is down, all the way down ballot for Republicans at the moment. I think that speaks, Charlie, to uh, it kind of gives me a little hope that 
Um, I don't if if the trends continue and we as we expect Democrats do uh, win November that um, voters aren't so solely motivated by materialistic uh, or, or uh, you know sort of outcomes that it's not simply about pocketbook issues that there is some concern about um, you know call it what you want the chaos of the Trump administration um, the sort of fraught political moment the or perhaps even just the the idea that uh, one party shouldn't have complete control of the federal government, um, that there are other motivating factors here. Um, but you, you have to, as I said at the beginning, you have to keep going back to just a very simple political fact that even Donald Trump may not be able to overcome, which is that he's an unpopular president. It's his first term. It's his first midterm election. And we just know how that should and probably will go. I want to move on, but I still want to chew on this just for a moment because there's some, there's some counter spin that that Connor Land was a conservative Democrat. So it's it's not it, apparently it's like what you put an asterisk behind it because he was in favor of gun rights. Um, he took a number of other moderate stands, but the reality is he's a mainstream Democrat who was pretty well suited for this district. So one of the questions I think legitimately is whether or not the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is going to be okay with this, Uh, whether or not the progressive wing of the Democratic Party will embrace Connor Lambs in these these races or whether or not they're going to go through the spasm of ideological purity that we've become so familiar with. Well, there's this particular difference or, or I guess, distinction about how Connor Lamb was picked. He was picked by the uh, local Democratic uh, parties or the, the various county parties in the district. Um, this was not somebody who was, you know, elected by or, you know, nominated by uh, the, the, the grassroots of the Democratic Party. I think hmm. that's an important distinction. He's the kind of candidate. Hugely that, important. Yeah, that, that you would have, uh, you know, if you had gotten a committee together, this is the candidate you would have picked. Not necessarily the same candidate in other districts, similar districts that Democratic voters are going to pick. Well, that's a very, very good point. Okay, you mentioned before the White House chaos, the reaction. Uh, two schools have thought about uh, the purge of Rex Tillerson, and apparently Larry Kudlow uh, is now going to be one of the top economic advisors, which is interesting in and of itself. So apparently the way to get into the cabinet is to be on Fox. He's on CNBC, right? I was going to say Fox. That's right. So is this a sign of chaos or is this a sign that the president, as the some of the New York Times reporters are suggesting, has now become so confident that he is essentially willing to um, take control of his administration, that he's basically getting rid of the grown-ups who disagreed with him and is asserting more control? So, you know, again, on one hand, it's chaotic. On the other hand, um, you know, Trump has decided to be Trump. Well, the chaos is just is part and parcel with what you, what you get with Trump. I mean, th- that doesn't change. Yeah. It's it was chaotic. That's why it's a trick question. It, exactly. <laughs> but I, I will say I will say this that uh, I do not think this is ideological. I do not think this is about even sort of uh, competency. This is about whether or not Donald Trump has people around him, people in his cabinet, people in his White House. Um, who are willing to go along with him, whether that means they uh, agree with him on policy, as someone like Peter Navarro, is the, um, who is sort of his trade guru, who's been there for a long time, is now back to the forefront, who's totally in sync with Trump on China and trade, or it's having somebody like Mike Pompeo, who is much more hawkish than Trump is sort of uh, or talks about being, you know, sort of interventionism uh, around the world, but speaks to Trump in a way that makes Trump feel good. I think that's the the factor here is the sort of personal uh, uh, synchronicity to I don't know, take a word um, uh, with the president himself 
uh, it's all really about personality and not so much about uh, uh, politics or about a particular sort of ideological alignment. Okay, now, J- Jonathan, you are the author of a famous uh, phrase about Trumpism, which I want to get to for a moment. So let's just talk about uh, Rex Tillerson. Rex Tillerson uh, leaves uh, somewhat gracefully, but does anybody actually think that Rex Tillerson was an effective or competent Secretary of State? Well, for all we know, he <laughs> he actually kept the lid on a bunch of other really stupid decisions from the president. I mean, it, it's entirely possible. No, I, I don't think he was particularly competent. He was hamstrung from the very beginning when he wanted to have Elliot Abrams as one of his deputies and the White House wouldn't let him. Uh, this was an experiment that I think it's safe to say, Mike, would you agree, that everybody knew was going to end in tears? Yeah. And it was part, I think, goes back to that first initial sort of uh, step of denying after after President Trump had a good meeting with Elliot Abrams. This is the number two person uh, behind Tillerson in the State Department, actually a very important job. And Tillerson was basically had, uh, you know, that was run over by the bus and um, and and never really recovered. It was like a it was a moment of weakness. And Tillerson never really had a chance, I think. Um, he was also just an, ill-suited for the job. You, you, you got a guy who was- Nothing about anything. For four yeah. decades, he was at the same company. It's yeah. a huge company, very important mm-hmm. company, ExxonMobil, but he, he didn't know what the, you know how the State Department works, and it's a whole different animal than Exxon or you know any other sort of multinational company. But he's a you know, you know, It's a good point so that, he, that he never recovered things. from you know being vetoed with you know Elliot Abrams, but also you could make the, the case that the Trump administration really never recovered from that uh, very, very rigid you know loyalty before competence standard that they used during the transition and you know how many times that has come back to bite them in the ass yeah and, and I would say in fairness to the Trump administration the loyalty before everything else is something that almost all presidential administrations do that's true the difference is that most presidential administrations have a pretty big pool of people who to pick from because you didn't have you might have half the party who didn't want them to be the nominee but the other half was fine with it uh, the reason it's so problematic for Trump is that basically nobody who's a grown-up was into it. You know, every, okay, everybody you, was resisting. And so your pool of people who were loyal from the beginning is really small and really shallow. Really shallow. Well, now, Jonathan, you are, you are famous and will, will be known for, for, for generations for coming up with the phrase, the Trumpism corrupts. And there are very various editions of this. So was, 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 was Rex Tillerson corrupted by Trumpism or was his failure to be corrupted the reason that he was fired? Uh, I I would say the latter. I so I I said Trumpism corrupt. I sort of made this quip in after the South Carolina uh, South Carolina debate, and it was where Donald Trump stood up there and accused George W. Bush of treason for the Iraq War. He said literally said he, he lied to him, lied America into war. Uh, he knew he was lying. This is a treasonous action, and all of the people at that point is a pretty small group of people who are on board with Trump. They all just decided they're going to line up and say yes. And mm-hmm. that was a moment when I thought to me, wait a minute, you can't be, you can't support Trump, you can't be in favor of Trump, you can't say that Trump would be a good president, but also say, by the way, this this idea he has that George W. Bush committed treason, kind of crazy. We're not into that. The fact that if you had to be, if you're in for a penny, you had to be in for a pound. And I would say that I have a great deal of sympathy to get for guys like Tillerson, mm-hmm. for guys like Kelly, McMaster, uh, people in the positions the that really matter who have been forced to really abase themselves and say things they don't agree with in, in 
all in service to try to keep some level of normalcy uh, at important levels of government. And I I actually think that Tillerson and McMaster and Kelly, again, these are guys I don't actually agree with policy-wise on very many things, but just the fact of them being willing to be humiliated and willing to... I've, you know, I would say hurt their own legacies in public life in service of trying to prevent something catastrophic from happening uh, is really admirable. And so I would I would totally let Tillerson off the hook in terms of, of corruption. Well, it is interesting. You're, you're right about this. That That is one of the prices of admission, isn't it? The willingness to be humiliated, because this is an administration that it manages by humiliation. Um, let's talk about one of our uh, one of our new uh, advertisers. In fact, uh, this is, I think, the uh, the first time that we're talking about tripping dot com. Uh, you don't have to visit a ton of different sites uh, on tripping dot com. One search lets you compare every home from the world's top vacation rental sites in one place to find the best deal on your perfect vacation rental. So, again, if, if you travel, I want to go on vacation. If you like staying in vacation homes as opposed to a hotel, um, this is the place to go. Vacation rentals offer more, obviously more privacy, more space for everybody under one roof, more choices, fully stocked kitchens, extra bedrooms, even hot tubs. And best of all, at Tripping.com, you can join millions of travelers who find more savings with rates up to 80% less than traditional hotel rooms. How about that? So if you are planning spring break on the beach in Florida, Tripping.com, if you want to go to Lake Tahoe this summer, Tripping.com. Uh, dreaming of sitting on the deck of a Smoky Mountains cabin, Tripping.com. This time, this this time next year, you can save money and time when you book the vacation home of your dreams with Tripping.com slash standard. Okay, here's the here's the, the what you need to do now. Tripping.com, T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G.com slash standard for your perfect vacation rental. Okay, gentlemen, uh, we have students all over the country that are walking out of schools, um, obviously getting a tremendous amount of media coverage. Uh, who wants to take a crack at whether or not this is really the uh, the game-changing moment uh, that some commentators, I think, wish it would be um, and are portraying it as being? Mike, do you want to or do you want me to? to <laughs> you go ahead, to- JBL. Uh, no, it's not a game-changing moment. It's not a, a moment. It will not change anything. None of the 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 problem to the extent that it is a problem uh, is such a foundational part of America and our legal system it's the second amendment if you don't like the second amendment and frankly i i don't love it myself all that much uh, then you got to work to repeal it and if you aren't willing to do that then you're not going to change the culture and even if you were to do that there are 300 million gun the fact that there are 300 million guns in existence means that even if you could come up with a perfect legal regime of gun control the fact of these things changes all of the calculus about everything and so this will not do anything except for get a bunch of kids out of school for the day, which I support, frankly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I did you ever do a, a school walkout? I, I did a school walkout. We did not. I, I was at my my school. I we walked were out always, back in 1970 over what? Protest the Vietnam War. Uh, we would have done that, but nobody wanted to miss like a, an AP Chem class because we didn't. <laughs> we were afraid if you miss, you know, one class, then you might get a, a four instead of a five on the exam, and then Georgetown wouldn't take you. And yeah. Yeah, well, let me. I have, I have really mixed feelings about this because num- number one, th- this is the first major cultural challenge that the NRA has gotten, and I think the NRA deserves to get kicked in the guts every once in a while because I think for too long they have been uh, the the loudmouth, absolutist drunk at the end of the bar, and too many many re- 
Republicans and conservatives have outsourced their thought thought process to them. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 it is good to see the NRA challenged. On the other hand, I agree with you. It's not going to change anything in the, the dynamics. It kind of feels good uh, to talk about this. I'm not sure that I would want to. I, I definitely don't want to see the Second Amendment repealed. But there's got to be some sort of reasonable where people reasonable common sense uh, solutions where people go, OK, just explain to me again why we need the high capacity magazines to go hunt deer. I mean, I'm, I'm from Wisconsin. I know a lot of people who hunt. Not clear about that. The third thing is that half of me really admires the, the kids for getting involved and speaking up, particularly those who went through the the trauma and you know look let's be honest guys we cannot even imagine what it's like to be in a school and have that happen and have you know your your friends you know gunned down that way on the other hand you get the sense that they're also being exploited exploited yes, yes exploited was the word I was exploited by the media and a couple of them I think of gotten um gotten the, uh, the the cable television stars in their eyes um and have become uh, uh, become sort of self-aware as political actors in a way that's not totally attractive do you know, you know what i'm getting yeah, at there? And, and not not just unattractive it's sort of unhealthy right like these kids have, have totally just been through a tra- traumatic experience and they're sort of going through the uh recovery on television in, in kind of anger and you understand their anger you understand their frustration but it it's exploitive and actually i think it actually sort of pawns off the responsibility of grown-ups of adults to sort of come up with a grown-up solution well it, it's on, worse than that though kids. it's worse there is this and this sort of really surfaced during the late 60s and 70s this notion that all the moral authority in the world lies in right. the single small right. voice of a child if only we would listen to the children then everything would be fine no children are savages like children are horrible <laughs> horrible human beings especially to one another and it is the job of adults to civilize them the children do not possess any special wisdom either moral or political or otherwise. And the notion that, you know, oh, well, we all need to listen to children. And again, I'm actually quite, I'm, I'm a very bad squish on the Second Amendment stuff, but we don't listen to, to children for what they believe about this or about that because uh, they don't know anything and they haven't been formed as moral creatures and human beings yet. And the fetishization of the, the opinions of children right. drives me crazy. Sorry. And those of us who were around <laughs> in the 60s and 70s know how that, uh, that you know, goes wrong. <laughs> Work, it worked out well the first, first time, they, right? They are so intelligent. They are, you know, so idealistic. And then you get that that self-righteous smugness <laughs> that is almost inevitable. And at that point, you go, okay, you know what? Um, you're 15 years old. You haven't got this whole thing figured out. I mean, honestly, you know, appreciate that you have lots of feelings about all of this, but but, but the fact that you're 15 does not actually give you moral credentials to lecture people who have a little bit more life experience and, you know, have a little bit more perspective on some of these issues. But, you know, I don't want to be the guy yelling at the screen, kids, get back to school, get off my lawn. Yeah, well, I, I just did that for you. So <laughs> you, that's why I appreciate cool. it so much. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. I appreciate this very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back and do this all over again tomorrow.